this podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In last week's episode, we talked about the characters involved in the Simpson-Goldman murder, going through their history and the events up to and including the murder. This episode, we will discuss what was known as the quote-unquote trial of the century. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, part two of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. O.J. Simpson was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. On June 20th, Simpson was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to both murders. As expected, the presiding judge ordered that Simpson be held without bail. The criminal trial was held at the Los Angeles County Superior Court and was presided over by Judge Lance Ito. The jury were sworn in on November 9, 1994 with opening statements being made on January 24, 1995. Alleged that as to counts one and two, you, have, you will have been in this proceeding convicted of more than one offense of murder in the first or second degree within the meaning of Penal Code Section 190.2A3. Mr. Simpson, do you understand the charges as I read them to you? Yes. And have you discussed those charges with your lawyer, sir? Yes. At this time, do you wish to enter a plea guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Your Honor, at this time, we would uh, request under the law that we have a preliminary hearing as soon as possible, and certainly within the next 10 days as provided by law. All right. The not guilty plea will be entered. The case will be set for a preliminary hearing within the statutory period. Simpson was represented by a very high-profile defense team also referred to as the quote-unquote dream team, which was initially led by Robert Shapiro, but subsequently directed by Johnny Cochran. The team also included F. Lee Bailey, Alan Dershowitz, Robert Kardashian, Sean Hawley, Carl E. Douglas, and Gerald Ullman. Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld were two additional attorneys who specialized in DNA evidence. 
the prosecution was headed by Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden. The prosecution decided not to seek the death penalty and instead sought a life sentence. The defense and prosecuting attorneys worked around the clock for several months to prepare their cases. Now before we go any further, we need to go back, back to 1991. Now the story that might never have surfaced if someone hadn't picked up his home video camera. We've all seen the pictures of Los Angeles police officers beating a man they had just pulled over. The city's police chief said today he will support criminal charges against some of the men. Here's ABC's Gary Shepard. On March 3rd, 1991, Rodney King was pulled over by the LAPD for drunk driving and speeding. During the arrest, the police were videotaped kicking, punching, and hitting King as he was on the ground. The four officers were charged with excessive force. Three were totally acquitted. The jury failed to reach a verdict on one charge for the fourth. Within hours of the acquittals, the 1992 Los Angeles riots started. Sparked by outrage among African Americans over the verdicts and long-standing social issues, the rioting lasted six days during which 63 people were killed and 2,373 were injured. It ended only after the California Army National Guard, the United States Army, and the United States Marine Corps provided reinforcements to reestablish control. One square block, we saw uh, both ends of the spectrum. We just saw everything. We and saw this fire that's burning, well, these fires, we've got, uh, how many buildings have we got burning there? One, One three, two, four. three, one's at already least. gone, three are going, four, they've gone uh, as far west as La Cienega, Captain Ron told us. Um, all right, we have on the line uh, Reverend Leonard Jackson of the First AME Church in South Central Los Angeles. If that sounds familiar, it is. That is where they were supposed to have and did have a peace rally last night at 7 o'clock, about the time that all this began. Reverend Jackson, are you with us? Yes, I am. You got any answers for us, sir? Uh, no, I do not have any uh, prompt answers for you, but I do have a challenge this evening for each and every ecumenical leader and pastor in the city of Los Angeles. I am urging you to contact the members of your congregation by telephone or any means possible, ask them to be responsible for themselves, their household, especially their children. This was the culmination of nearly 50 years of racism on the part of the LAPD. So in 1995, this was still fresh in the minds of LA residents during the Simpson trial. prosecution believed that it had a strong case despite the lack of known witnesses to the crime and the failure to recover the murder weapon. Clark's case was supported by DNA evidence. 
From the physical evidence that was collected, the prosecution claimed that Simpson drove to Brown's house on the evening of June 12th with the intention of killing her. They argued further that Simpson left a trail of blood from the condo to the alley behind it. There was also testimony that three drops of Simpson's blood were found on the driveway near the gate to his house on Rockingham Drive. On June the 12th, 1994, after a violent relationship in which the defendant beat her, humiliated her, and controlled her, after he took her youth, her freedom, and her self-respect, just as she tried to break free, Orenthal James Simpson took her very life in what amounted to his final and his ultimate act of control. And in that final and terrible act, Ronald Goldman, an innocent bystander, was viciously and senselessly murdered. Remember that in Voidir, we asked you if you could use your common sense and reason to fairly and to objectively evaluate this evidence as neutral, impartial judges of the facts. You all promised that you could and you would, and we believe that you will. We have every faith and belief in the fact that you will all keep that promise. But it will not be easy. You will be tested and tempted throughout this case to accept the unreasonable and be distracted by the irrelevant. The defense will talk to you about possibilities, and they'll insinuate many sinister things based on those possibilities. Possibilities of contamination, possibilities of setup, all in an effort to explain away all of the physical evidence. But possibilities alone do not equal proof. You've heard the instruction that says that all matters subject to human affairs are capable of some possible doubt. That's why the standard is reasonable doubt. And you'll hear the word reasonable more than once in the jury instructions, and you already have. Because if the proof standard was beyond all possible doubt, there could never be a conviction. There can always be a possible doubt about something. The question is whether you have a doubt that's founded in reason. So beware of the efforts to get you to accept the unreasonable, be distracted by the irrelevant, and to base your decision on speculation on mere possibilities with no hard evidence to show that any of them really occurred. Listen carefully to all the possibilities and the hints raised by the defense and ask yourselves, is there any proof that any of these possibilities actually occurred? Listen carefully for the defense to explain how the defendant's blood got on 875 South Bundy Walkway. It's going to be up to you, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to have to be ever vigilant in acting as the judges in this case. Each one of you is a judge. Each one of you is a trier of fact. You have to examine all of the evidence very carefully, and as you do so, ask yourselves, is this reasonable? Is this logical? Does this make sense? According to the prosecution, Simpson was last seen in public at 9.36 p.m. that evening, when he returned to the front gate of his house with Cato Kalin, a family friend who had been given the use of the guest house on Simpson's estate. Simpson was not seen again until 10.54 p.m., an hour and 18 minutes later, when he came out of the front door to his house to a waiting limousine he had hired to take him to Los Angeles International Airport 
to fly to a Hertz convention in Chicago. The defense and prosecution both agreed that the murders took place between 10.15 and 10.40 p.m., with the prosecution alleging that Simpson had driven his Bronco during the required five minutes to and from the murder scene. They presented a witness in the vicinity of Bundy Drive who saw a car similar to Simpson's Bronco speeding away from the area at 10.35 p.m. Limousine driver Alan Park testified that he arrived at Simpson's estate at 10.24 p.m. Driving past the Rockingham Gate, he did not see Simpson's Bronco parked at the curb. Park testified that he had been looking for and had seen the house number, and the prosecution presented exhibits to show that the position in which the Bronco was found the next morning was right next to the house number implying that Park would have surely noticed if the Bronco had been there at the time. According to Simpson's version of the events, the Bronco had been parked in that position for several hours. Meanwhile, Kalen was in his guest house and on the telephone to a friend. Park parked and began to buzz the intercom at 1040, getting no response. Park got out of the limo and looked through the Ashford gate and saw that the house was dark with no lights on, except for a dim light coming from the second floor windows, which was Simpson's bedroom. While smoking a cigarette, Park made a series of phone calls from his cellular to the pager of his boss. At approximately 10.50, Kalen, who was still on the phone, heard three thumps against the outside wall of his guest house. Kalen hung up the phone and ventured outside to investigate the noises, but decided not to venture directly down the dark south pathway from which the thumps had originated. Instead, he walked to the front of the property and saw Park's limo outside the gate. During that phone call, did something unusual occur? Yeah, I uh, heard a noise. Now, how long had you been talking to your friend Rachel when you heard that noise? It was probably a uh, half hour into the conversation. Okay, so about 10.40 or so you heard a noise? About that time. Can you describe for us the noise you heard, Mr. Kalen? It was, um, you know, in my room, it has this uh, wall in it, like that. For the record, the witness thumped on the witness stand with his fist. And you hit the witness stand like three times or so. Was that three noises that you heard? I believe it was three noises. It was... Thumping. It sounded like three thumps. Yes. And where did the thumps seem to come from? Right behind my, the bedroom wall, where my bed would be. Okay. Um, you said you have an air conditioning unit in a hole in the wall? Yes. Was it in the same wall that the air conditioning unit was in? Yes. Was it near the air conditioning unit that the thumps seemed to come from? Yes. What happened when you heard those thumps? Well, I was on the phone and I said, I asked uh, Rachel, I said, I think we had an earthquake. Do we have an earthquake? And um, no, she'd said, and I noticed my picture had moved, so I was start thinking that maybe there was a person back there. At some time, Park saw Kaylin come from the back of the property to the front. He testified that he saw a quote-unquote tall black man of Simpson's height and build 
enter the front door of the house from the driveway area, after which the lights were turned on and Simpson finally answered Park's calls. Simpson explained that he had overslept and he would be at the front gate soon. Kaylin opened the gate to let Park drive the limo onto the estate grounds, and Simpson came out of his house through the front door a few minutes later. Both Kaylin and Park helped Simpson put his belongings into the trunk of the limo for the ride to the airport. Both Kaylin and Park remarked in their testimonies that Simpson looked agitated, but other witnesses, including the ticket clerk at LAX who checked Simpson onto the plane and a flight attendant, said that Simpson looked and acted perfectly normal. Simpson's initial claim that he was asleep at the time of the murders was refuted by several different accounts. According to defense lawyer Johnny Cochran, Simpson had never left his house that night, and he was alone as he packed his belongings to travel to Chicago. Cochran claimed that Simpson went outside through the back door to hit a few golf balls into the children's sandbox in the front garden, one or more of which made the three loud thumps on the wall of Kalen's bungalow. Cochran produced a potential alibi witness, Rosa Lopez, a neighbor's Spanish-speaking housekeeper who testified that she had seen Simpson's car parked outside his house at the time of the murders. However, Lopez's account, which was not presented to the jury, was pulled apart under intense cross-examination by Clark when she was forced to admit that she could not be sure of the precise time she saw Simpson's Bronco outside of his house. The defense tried to convince the jury that Simpson was not physically capable of carrying out the murders, saying that Goldman was a fit young man who put up a fierce struggle against his assailant. Simpson was a 46-year-old former professional football player with chronic arthritis and had scars on his knees from old football injuries. However, Clark produced into an evidence an exercise video that Simpson made a few months before which showed that, despite some physical conditions and limitations, Simpson was anything but frail. Okay, guys. Okay. All right, what we're going to start with is what we call easy impact. It's athletic, it's physical, and there's no dancing. 
What we've done is we've taken a lot of moves that you would use if you were competing in a sport and incorporated them in a cardiovascular workout for you ex-jocks, uh, weekend athletes, and some of you couch potatoes out there. I know you guys can handle it. And here to help us with it is one of the best motivators I know, personal trainer Richard Walsh. Thanks, OJ. All you guys have to do is be consistent with your workout and you're going to lose fat. It's that simple. We're also going to increase your energy, strengthen our joints, improve the shape of the muscles, get a nice flexibility going for us. We're going to do it all in 25 minutes, three days a week. Okay, now this isn't a conventional aerobics uh, workout. It's something that anybody should be able to That's do. Right. If there's any part of this that you can't do, just don't do it. And sometimes there's some alternate things you can do that'll help you out. But we'll show you as we go along. Right. Why don't we get started, Dan? All set? All right. All right. Let's get going. The prosecution called Brown's sister, Denise, to the witness stand. She tearfully testified to many episodes of domestic violence in the 1980s when she saw Simpson pick up his wife and hurl her against the wall, then physically throw her out of their house during an argument. The prosecution then called Karen Lee Crawford, the manager of the Mezzaluna restaurant where Brown ate on the night she was murdered. Crawford recounted that Brown's mother phoned the restaurant at 9.37 p.m. about a pair of lost eyeglasses. Crawford found them and put them in a white envelope. Goldman left the restaurant at 9.50 after his shift, taking the glasses to drop them off at Brown's house. Brown's neighbor, Pablo Fineves, testified about hearing a quote-unquote very distinctive barking and a quote-unquote plaintive wail of a dog at around 10 to 15 minutes after 10 p.m. while he was at home watching the news on television. Eva Stein, another neighbor, testified about a very loud and persistent barking, also around 10.15 p.m., that kept her from going back to sleep. Neighbor Stephen Schwab testified that while he was walking his dog in the area near Brown's house at around 11.30 p.m., he noticed Brown's wandering and agitated Akita dog trailing its leash. He saw that it had bloody paws, but after examining it, he found the dog uninjured. Schwab said that he took the dog to a neighbor friend of his, Sakuro Bozepi, before taking it into his home where it became more agitated. Bozepi took the dog for a walk at approximately midnight and testified that it tugged on its leash and led him to Brown's house. There he discovered Brown's dead body. Minutes later, Bozepi flagged down a passing patrol car. Officer Risk was the first officer at the crime scene. He testified that he found a barefoot woman in a black dress laying face down in a puddle of blood on the walkway that led to the front door of the house. He next saw Goldman's body a short distance away, laying on its side beside a tree and off the walkway. Risk said that he saw a white envelope, which was later found to contain the glasses left at the restaurant by Brown's mother. He also saw Goldman's beeper, a black leather glove, and a dark blue knit ski cap on the ground near the bodies. The front door of Brown's house was wide open, but there was no signs of forced entry nor any evidence that anyone had entered the premises. Nothing inside was out of the ordinary. On Sunday, February 12, 1995, a long motorcade traveled into Brentwood, and the jurors, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and Judge Ito made a two-hour inspection of the crime scene, 
it was followed by a three-hour tour of the Simpson estate. Detective Ron Phillips testified that when he called Simpson in Chicago to tell him of his ex-wife's murder, he sounded shocked and upset, but he did not ask how she died. The defense argued that Simpson was the victim of police fraud and what they termed as sloppy internal procedures which had contaminated the DNA evidence. Simpson's defense was said to have cost between $3 million and $6 million. Simpson's defense team argued that Furman had planted evidence at the crime scene. LAPD criminalist Fung and Mazzola were subject to strong scrutiny. Hi, Mr. Sheck. Mr. Sheck, you may begin your recross examination. On redirect examination, Mr. Fung, uh, do you recall that it began with a number of questions about uh, conspiracies? Call the testimonies or called. You recall that? I don't know what, where it was, but yes. You recall questions to the effect, are you in a conspiracy with Detective Lang, uh, Michelle Kessler, who hu her husband, whoever that might be, or Detective Furman against this defendant? Remember that? Irrelevant. Old. Do you remember being asked if you were in a conspiracy with Ms. Mazzola to cover up receiving some item with your bare hand? Something to that effect. All right. uh, do you remember being asked if you were a in a conspiracy to allow uh, Detective Lang to get into the evidence processing room and somehow get DNA on swatches? Remember a question, something to that effect also. And you answered all those questions, no. That's correct. Right. Now, uh, let me ask you. Uh, have you ever heard the term cover-up? Yes. What does that mean to you, sir? When something, somebody does something wrong and cover their tracks, um, you try to s show that they didn't do anything wrong. Or they try to protect them from being discovered. Yes. Uh, and that one, have you tried, sir, to cover up mistakes by yourself or others that occurred during this investigation? I have made corrections through proper channels, um, but I have not tried to cover up any mistakes. In your testimony, sir, in the way you answered questions, have you ever tried to cover up mistakes that were made by yourself or others? No. Have you tried in your testimony to cover up misconduct by anyone? No. Mr. Fung, 
in the course of your, you were asked a number of questions about the way you normally testify. Yes. All right. Now, when you testify, sir, do you revise your recollections of events in order to make it, make your testimony come out in a way that you think favors the position of the prosecution? No. At any time, sir, have you claimed not to remember some event one way or the other uh, because being vague in your recollection would help cover up mistakes or misconduct? Not on purpose, no. Simpson's defense sought to show that one or more hitmen hired by drug dealers had murdered Brown and Goldman, giving them both a quote-unquote Colombian necktie because they were looking for Brown's friend, Faye Resnick, a known cocaine user who had failed to pay her for her drugs. However, Judge Ito barred testimony about Resnick's drug use. She had stayed for several days at Brown's condo until entering rehab four days before the killings. Ito stated that the defense had failed to provide sufficient or direct circumstantial evidence that the scenario was possible, indicating, quote, I find the offer of proof regarding motive to be highly speculative, unquote. Consequently, he prohibited Christian Reichert from testifying about his former girlfriend Resnick's drug problems. In closing arguments, Darden ridiculed the notion that the police officers might have wanted to frame Simpson. He questioned why, if the LAPD was against Simpson, they went to his house eight times on domestic violence calls against Brown between 1986 and 1988, but did not arrest him. They only arrested him on charges of abuse in January 1989, when photos of Brown's face were entered into the record. Darden noted the police did not arrest Simpson for five days after the 1994 murders. It all points to him. See, I'm not afraid to point to him. Nobody's pointed him out and said he did it. I'll point to him. And why not? The evidence all points to him. And it's also because when you, when you look at the bloody ruthlessness, ruthlessness, my mouth is getting dry, of these murders, and when you see, as Ms. Clark pointed out, that these killings were rage killings, rage, and you have to say to yourself, well, who in the past has ever raised a hand to this woman? Who? during the days and the hours leading to her death, was upset with her. And as Ms. Clark alluded to earlier, you're too kind. Clark alluded to earlier. The killing was personal. The way it was done. The way it was done. This is personal. Somebody had a score to settle. Well, who had a score to settle? With Nicole. 
when you look at all of that, you look at the domestic violence, the manner of the killing, the physical evidence, the history of abuse in, in, in their relationship, the intimidation, the stalking, you look at all of it, it all points to him. It all points to him. In Cochran's summation to the jury, he emphasized that Furman was proved to have repeatedly referred to African Americans as quote-unquote niggers and also have boasted of beating young African Americans in his role as an LAPD officer. Cochran also called Furman a quote-unquote genocidal racist, a perjurer, America's worst nightmare, and the personification of evil. I was thinking... last night about this case and their theory and how it didn't make any sense and how it didn't fit and how something is wrong. It occurred to me how they were going to come here and stand up here and tell you how O.J. Simpson was going to disguise himself, was going to put on a knit cap and some dark clothes and he was going to get in his white Bronco and this recognizable person and go over and kill his wife. That's what they want you to believe. That's how silly they're argument is. And I said to myself, maybe I can demonstrate this graphically. I'm going to show you something. This is a knit cap. I'm going to put this knit cap on. Now, you've been seeing me for a year. If I put this knit cap on, who am I? I'm still Johnny Cochran with a knit cap. And if you look at O.J. Simpson over there, and he has a rather large head, O.J. Simpson in a knit cap from two blocks away is still O.J. Simpson. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It reminded me that there was testimony early on that uh, Detective Lang had uh, refused basically to pick up a knit cap inside the Brown residence uh, that was shown to him, I think, by some of the lawyers and one of the investigators on that date. I guess these are fairly common. But they don't really disguise anybody who's noticeable, do they? And although I was the guinea pig here this afternoon, if you were to put a knit cap on, how's that going to disguise you? We've been together. I'd know your face anywhere now. And you'd know mine. And the people in Brentwood, in West Los Angeles, would know Jay Simpson. They know his car. They know him. That's where he lives. Even the prosecutors say, He's so famous that he can't go anywhere where he wouldn't be recognized. Furman later pleaded no contest to a felony charge of perjury, which had arisen from his testimony in Simpson's trial. Fears grew that race riots would erupt across Los Angeles and the rest of the country if Simpson was convicted of the murders. As a result, all Los Angeles police officers were put on 12-hour shifts, the police arranged for more than 100 police officers on horseback to surround the Los Angeles County Courthouse on the day of the verdict in case of rioting by the crowd. At 10.07 a.m. on October 3, 1995, Simpson was acquitted of murder on both counts. The only testimony reviewed was that of limo driver Alan Park, who was said that he did not see Simpson's Bronco outside the estate when he arrived to pick him up after the murders occurred. All right, Mr. Car Mr. Uh, Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? Mrs. Robertson. 
Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. Superior Court of the State of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in count two of the information. We, the jury in the above entitled action, further find the special circumstance that the defendant, Orthal James Simpson, has in this case been convicted of at least one crime of murder of the first degree and one or more crimes of murder of the first or second degree to be not true. Signed this second day of October 1995, juror 230. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is this your verdict? So say you one, so say you all. All right, counsel, Mr. Simpson, would you be seated, please? Let's have a quiet in the courtroom, please. The jury arrived at the verdict by 3 p.m. on October 2nd after only four hours of deliberation, but Judge Ito postponed the announcement. An estimated 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict. So much work stopped that the verdict cost an estimated $480 million in lost productivity. In 1996, Fred Goldman and Sharon Rufo, the parents of Ron Goldman, filed a civil suit against Simpson for wrongful death. While Brown's estate brought the suit against Simpson in a quote-unquote survivor suit, Simpson's defense in the trial was estimated to cost $1 million and was paid for by an insurance policy on his company, Orenthal Enterprises. The jury in the civil trial awarded Brown and Simpson's children, Sidney and Justin, $12.6 million from their father as recipients of their mother's estate. The victims' families were awarded $33.5 million in compensatory and punitive damages, thereby finding Simpson quote-unquote responsible for their respected murders. Our family is grateful for a verdict of responsibility, which is all we ever wanted. And we have it, thank God. In November of 2006, Reagan Books announced a book by Simpson titled, If I Did It, an account which the publisher said was a hypothetical confession. The book's release was planned to coincide with a Fox special featuring Simpson. On November 20th, News Corporation, parent company of Reagan Books and Fox, canceled both the book and the TV interview due to a high level of public criticism. Later, the Goldman family was awarded rights to the book to partially satisfy the civil judgment against Simpson. The title of the book was changed to, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. On March 11, 2018, Fox broadcast Simpson's previously unaired interview with Reagan in a special titled O.J. Simpson, The Lost Confession. In the decade-old interview, Simpson hypothesized how the murders would have been committed if he had been involved. These comments 
were interpreted by many as being a form of confession, which stirred strong reactions in print media and the Internet. Why don't you tell me what might have happened on the night of June 12th, 1994? <laughs> and let's just walk yeah, through the night. I, well, first of all, it's, this is very difficult for me to do this. Uh, it was very difficult for me because it's hypothetical. I know and I accept the fact that people are going to feel whatever way they're going to feel. <laughs> you know, uh, they're going to, uh, um, you know, some, uh, whatever, uh, whatever they want to feel. In the book, the hypothetical is... Uh, uh, Charlie. Uh, Paul Sutter. Charlie. <laughs> Uh, this guy, Charlie, shows up, the guy who I had recently become friends with, and uh, I don't know why you had been by Nicole's house, but it told me you wouldn't believe what's going on over there. And uh, and I remember thinking, well, whatever's going on over there has got to stop, right? So we kind of hooked up together, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of broad-stroking this. We go over Get into Bronco and go over. Let, let's just go back and do the details. Where did you I'm park? I'm going to the details. You park in, in the hypothetical in the alley. Right. You park in the alley. Yeah. And you put on a wool cap and gloves. Uh, in the hypothetical, I put on a cap and gloves. Right. Yeah. And um, you reached under the seat for um, a knife. I always kept a knife in the car for the crazies and stuff because you can't travel with a gun. And I remember Charlie saying, you ain't bringing that. And I didn't, right? But I believe he took it. Charlie took the knife? Yeah. In the book. Yeah. Yes. So the back gate, you go through the back gate? Yes. And it was open or broken or? I don't recall. Okay. I go to the front and I'm looking to see what's going on. Um, and I could see that it appears, like Nicole had, I had candles all the time. She really did to keep her overhead down, I think. And music was on, and uh, while I was there, a guy shows up. You know? So Ron Goldman comes in the back gate. Yeah, a, a, a guy that I really didn't recognize. I, I may have seen him around, but I really didn't recognize him to be anyone. And, uh, and I, in the mood I was in, I started having words with him. He says to you, I just came by to return a pair of glasses. Judy left them at the restaurant. Yeah, words to that effect, yes. And, and uh, he was I don't know if I believe it or didn't believe it. Uh, it was pretty much immaterial because, you know, uh, I was more concerned about everything that, that, everything that was going on, you know, and uh, was uh, fed up with it, I guess. And uh, You get into a fight. Nicole comes out. And verbal, a verbal A verbal fight. fight. Got a little loud, and by that time, uh, uh, Nicole had come out, and we started having words about who is this guy, why is he here, what's going on. And, and she says, this is my house, get that the F out yeah, of here. Yes, and uh, which I didn't like because, once again, this is the same person, and if you read the book, you'll see some things that happened in the two weeks leading up to this that were uh, very, very irritating, you know. Uh, and I think Charlie had followed this guy in, one make sure it was no problem, and he brought the knife. As things got heated, uh, I just remember Nicole fell and hurt herself. And uh, this guy kind of got into a karate thing. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed the knife. I do remember that portion, taking the knife from Charlie. And to be honest, after that, I don't remember 
except I'm standing there and there's all kind of stuff around and um, um, what kind of stuff? Blood and stuff around. You know, we, you know, I hate to say this, but this is like, but I'm right, sorry. Right. I know we got to back up again. Right. It's <laughs> okay. Know? I'm going to back this up. This is hard. This is this hard. Is hard. To, I know. know. I'm going to back it's up hard to, to try to make people think that I'm a. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, you wrote in the book, I had never seen so much blood in my life. Mm, yes. Covered. You're covered, the scene. Can you describe yeah, it? I, I, it's hard for me to describe it, I'm telling you. I don't think any two people could be um, murdered the way they were without everybody being covered in blood. And of course, I think we've all seen the grisly pictures after. So yeah, I think everything was covered, would have been covered in blood. And what goes through your mind at a time like that? I don't know. It's like, uh, what happened? Right. Mm -hmm. You write about removing a glove before taking the knife from Charlie. Uh, you know, I had no conscious memory of doing that, but obviously I must have because they found a glove there. And blacking out. Have no. you ever blacked out before? Not to my knowledge. No. No, of course. Uh, of course, if something like this would take place in anybody's life, if it were to happen, I would imagine it's something that you would probably automatically uh, have trouble wrapping your, your mind around it. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Then you see bloody footprints and you decide to take off. Yes. Actually, I, I believe Charlie kept saying, we got to get out of here. And... In the book, you describe taking off your shoes, your pants, and your shirt and dropping it in a bundle. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. And do you remember what happened? Because what next? are you going to do with it? <laughs> you know, somebody's got to get rid of, uh, as you may have called during the trial, is that wear the bloody clothes. So somebody had to get rid of the bloody clothes. Right. And you had left your keys and wallet in your pants pocket, and you had to go back and get it? You know, to be honest, uh, I think, I, I know that to be true, yes, yes. Um, and Charlie is hysterical, screaming, Jesus Christ, RJ, Jesus Christ, and you tell him to yeah, shut up. Yeah, he's in a panic. He was in a panic, and I'm telling him to shut up, let's get out of here. So you get back in the car, you take in your clothes, put them yeah, in the bundle. and drove back, and, and it parked a block away, because I knew the limo would be there, and came across the backyard through the two tennis courts, and, you know came through the house. So you went through the neighbors? Neighbors, yeah. He had a tennis court, then I had a tennis court. And you go into the house, and what happens in the house? I, I, I ran upstairs to take a shower. I actually ran upstairs and took some of my bags and came back downstairs and put them out front. my opinion, as is most everyone's opinion, O.J. Simpson murdered Nicole and Ron. 
His high-powered legal team exploited the recent racial tensions in Los Angeles. So, for Mr. Simpson, it was money well spent. I believe that had the injustice of acquitting the four police officers in the Rodney King trial not occurred, that Mr. Simpson would be serving life behind bars. Sadly, because of decades of racial abuse by the LAPD, a man who brutally murdered two people was able to exploit that fact to walk away scot-free. In the end, these victims will never receive justice. You can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can now also follow me on Instagram at michael.prit, P-R-I-T-T, 81. Thanks for listening. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. Until then, stay safe.